This Late Hour presents The Genesis Problem. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be. After that, the hymn rather went off the rails, but those first two lines uh, have inspired me ever since. I don't want the young earth creationist interpretation to come out true. Okay. Uh, to me, that is a nightmare. Uh, my, my greatest fear is that the young earth creationist might be right in his hermeneutical claim. It is a thing most wonderful that on this once barren rock orbiting a rather mediocre star on the edge of a rather ordinary galaxy, on this rock, a remarkable process called evolution by natural selection has given rise to the magnificent diversity of complexity of life. I need to know if she really thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. That's an important, I want to know that, I really do, because she's going to have the nuclear codes, you know? I, I want to know if she thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. The elegance, the beauty, and the illusion of design, which we see all around us, brought together by this mechanical, automatic, unplanned, unconscious process, evolution by natural selection. That's not just true, it's beautiful. And it... I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today we are diving one last time this season into the Genesis Problem with Part 5 of the series. Today's episode is the second part of a two-part interview with returning guest Dr. Ben Scripture of Scripture on Creation Ministries as he responds to comments made during a recent interview by Dr. William Lane Craig of Reasonable Faith Ministries. In our last episode, Dr. Scripture pointed out that the arguments Craig is making here for his view on Genesis is but a new twist on what is an old attempt by many to harmonize the early chapters of Genesis with the interpretations of modern evolutionary science, a point Dr. Scripture will flesh out more at the end of our interview today. It is Dr. Scripture's view that Craig is doing essentially the same thing that Josh Schwamidas has been doing, trying to fold evolution into the Genesis account. Craig admits himself that the one whom jettisons the fact that there was an historical Adam ends up sending massive reverberations throughout scripture. Even given this fact, he dismissed the notion of original sin, that is, that sin and death entered the world upon Adam and Eve's disobedience within the garden. Dr. Scripture suggests that Craig is being inconsistent with his view and understanding of the Genesis account. Dr. Scripture believes that Craig was forming a straw man argument regarding the worst-case scenarios related to throwing out an historical Adam altogether. Craig stated, if it were ever proven there wasn't one, that is, an Adam, to which Dr. Scripture asked, how could that ever be proven? Craig goes on to state that those who throw out an historical Adam are not heretics. To this I disagree. It is my view that anyone throwing out any part of the inerrant and infallible word of God is committing a heresy, whether he thinks it or not. Dr. Craig stated that every Old Testament scholar thinks that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are mytho-history, or some variation thereof. This was clearly an overstatement, as plenty of present-day biblical scholars take the accounts found in Genesis 1-11 through as literal. Regarding whether Craig was committing a heresy, Dr. Scripture stated that we can have all kinds of messed-up doctrine and still be saved. He said that Craig is not a heretic, but is certainly on a slippery slope. I would say that I share this assessment. However, as I stated last time, I believe Craig is trying to have his cake and eat it too. He doesn't want to commit to those first 11 chapters being literal history, but he also doesn't want to throw them out, and thus makes this compromise of holding to the fact 
Adam was historical, but that the story we are given is not literal. Additionally, Craig states that there must be true historical elements to these early chapters due to the presence of the genealogies. It is anyone's guess on who gets to decide, then, what is to be taken literal and what is to be taken figurative. Because of this, Craig is forced to theorize his own story about what happened, as we will hear more about in today's episode. With that, let us dive back in into the Genesis problem as Dr. Ben's scripture continues his response to Dr. William Lane Craig's recent interview regarding his new book, In Quest of the Historical Adam. he gets into uh the whole his whole you can really kind of get a sense of of how he thinks about these early chapters through his next statement here i think it should prompt us not to be over literalistic in the way we read these narratives and once you begin to look at them in terms of mytho history it's difficult to look at them in any other way. Hmm. I mean, when you read a story about two people in an arboretum with these magical trees whose fruit, if you eat it, will grant you immortality or knowledge of good and evil. And then there's this talking snake who comes along and tempts them into sin. And then you have this anthropomorphic God walking in the cool of the garden, calling out audibly to Adam in his, in his hideout. You think, well, of course this is figurative uh, and metaphorical language. This isn't meant to be read in this sort of literalistic fashion. And so once you begin to see these narratives this way, I think... You, you begin to ask yourself, how could I have read them any other way? It would be like reading Aesop's fables literalistically hmm. as really about talking animals, for example, um, rather than as figurative or, or metaphorical uh, in order to teach some moral lesson. So the same as reading Aesop's fables. Hmm. Interesting. You know, it, it seems like he's saying... It has to be figurative because it's just it's just too extraordinary to have been a real historical event. Right. I mean, he, he uh, very much that very much fits the sort of scoffing um, evolutionists idea that, oh, uh, an ark with a bunch of animals that uh, only survived because uh, that that survived because of the after the flood. You know, they got off the ark and populated the earth and, and they just scoff at that idea. And yet we've got mitochondrial evidence to support that, that very concept. Um, the idea of God walking uh, with Adam and Eve in a garden, he, 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 he thought that that was a silly idea. Excuse me. Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and we see depictions of angelic beings, even the angel of Jehovah, who we understand to be um, God himself in, in uh, pre-incarnate flesh, walking with people on earth. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know why he has such a, thinks that that's so ridiculous, but, but he does. And so he's trying to figure out a way to make it seem as though, but that's not what the Bible meant either. You know, just sort of trying to bail the Bible out of what he considers to be, to be uh, foolishness. Yeah, he follows that up. Uh... And this next statement about the whole idea of being too fantastic. But I think we can say that there are elements in these stories that exhibit the sort of mythological literary genre, which the author and his audience would have recognized to be fantastic if they were taken literally. Uh, and that therefore that gives good reason to think that they were not always taken in a literal way. So how can he know that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think I wish he would would define his the meaning of fantastic. But given what he is saying, I, I let me give what I think is his definition of fantastic, and that he means by that he means um, of fantasy. It, it's something of fantasy. 
not the way we tend to use fantastic as, you know, wonderful and amazing and, and, and grand, you know, um, because I think those things are fantastic too, but not as a fantasy, uh, but as reality. And they make uh, the things that God has done miraculous. Uh, and of course, that is one of the, that is virtually the basic objection that uh, the materialistic evolutionists have with the Bible. Uh, there can be no miracles. There's no such thing as supernatural anything. The Bible immediately presents God as a miracle worker. It says he spoke and these things happen. Um, in my mind, this is one of the things that God wants to establish immediately with us. He can do miracles and we cannot. He is God. We are not. And uh, so I have no problem with the fantastic <laughs> events and the fantastic things that are presented in uh, the Bible. Uh, but Craig seems to have some issues with a lot of those fantastic things. Yeah, and he, he goes on to, to talk about distinctions between literary and historical figures. But before I get to that clip, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, if this story in the Genesis is too fantastic for you, then what on earth? Why would you believe in Jesus rising from the dead? That's where it ends up, Casey. That's where it always ends up at the yeah. resurrection. And that oh, okay. is the heresy that uh, defines whether a person is saved or not. And so I used the terminology earlier. It is a slippery slope. Right. I mean, you know, was it fan did, they, did God actually split the sea or is that too fantastic? Did he actually split the rock or is that too fantastic? Did uh, David actually take out Goliath or is that too fantastic? I mean, isn't the whole point of scripture, God moving in fantastic ways that declare his glory and his intervention? I certainly uh, think it that to be so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, apparently Craig has a problem with it. So he's going to get on to um, this whole idea of distinctions between literary and historical. And this is actually, I think, really goes into that slippery slope idea a lot more. This is a distinction which is widely made among New Testament scholars when it comes to dealing with how the New Testament treats figures in literature that the New Testament authors cite. So, for example, um, when they talk about Moses, is this the Moses that actually lived or is it the Moses as described in the Pentateuch? Uh, when they talk about Adam, is this the actual historical Adam, or is this just the Adam of the story? And you cannot assume too quickly mm. that the literary figure is the same as the historical figure. Wow. You know, this to me seems like he's he's really setting himself up for a massive problem in his own argument here because i could say well we have to be too careful not to determine too quickly between the literary and the historical jesus that we read about in the Indeed. scriptures i so, mean that's that again is where that will end up um the the you know you hear all the time about the uh the historical jesus versus the literary jesus this uh this character this person that uh came and, and uh, you know, had all these wonderful ideas that, that will help mankind uh, get along. And, and uh, but uh, a historical Jesus that actually uh, was sinless and died on the cross and raised from the dead. Well, that's fantastic <laughs> to use a word I've heard. It is. It's one of the most fantastic things in all of history. Uh huh. But uh, some would use that meaning that word "fantastic" to mean fantasy, right? And I just see it as uh, extremely problematic for the argument he's trying to make. And he goes on um, and kind of, I think he's trying to flesh out his idea of fantastic a little more, which only I think <laughs> digs a deeper hole. But we'll see what you say. In some of these cases, we have really good grounds for thinking mm. it's not historical. Mm. For example, the figures of Janus and Jambres, 
that are referred to in First Timothy, you can show the history of this pair in Jewish folklore, how it evolved, and the wild legends about Janus and Jambres and the magicians' contest they had with Moses and all the rest. It, it, to think that this is really historical would be a wild stretch of the imagination. Or the example in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about this well that traveled along with the Israelites through the desert during their wilderness wanderings. In Jewish folklore, there was this well about the size of a beehive that kind of rolled along on the ground, and then every night it would stop and it would yield water for the Israelites to drink out of. And Paul refers to this legend and says, and that well was Christ. Hmm. Now, are you going to say that that identification requires you to believe that this story about this traveling well is true? I don't know anybody who thinks that's true. So in some cases, it's not simply that we can't assume that it's historical, because okay. it's cited by a New Testament author. Okay. But in some cases, the stories, again, are so fantastic okay. that I think we can say, no, this is plausibly not historical. So who gets to decide what's historical and what isn't? Yeah, you know, the, the, the case with Janice and Jambres, I, I am not familiar with all kinds of Jewish folklore that may have been built up around those two characters. But to go back to... Moses, again, is Craig saying that he doesn't believe that, that uh, God enabled uh, Moses to do the miracles that he did in front of Pharaoh? Maybe that was too fantastic for him. Why couldn't Janus and Jambres be, to use Craig's terminology, historical characters? And uh, then, and indeed, there have been embellishments and so on and so forth that have built up around them, but not in the Bible. But if those were two historical characters, and frankly, by definition, I would say since um, Paul does refer to them as uh, two people uh, that live, they were historical characters. Uh, but the rest of what we might read about them in other literature isn't necessarily true. That doesn't then mean so the characters that we read in the Bible, um, they are historic. Some of them are historical but uh, what the Bible says about them isn't true either. I mean, this just puts the Bible on the exact same footing as the, uh, the Gospel of Thomas or uh, some of these uh, apocryphal writings that, that immediately upon reading them with any care, you find contradictions and, and things like this. The Bible has gone through thousands of years of scrutiny, and we have a canon that um, spirit-led, wise discerning people have uh, put together for us in, in, so that we can be confident that this indeed is God's word. It is inspired. Craig talked about how important inspiration was, but I don't know what he thinks the effect of inspiration is. <laughs> Frankly, I mean, if all he does is continue to chop away at, well, this doesn't really mean that, that doesn't really mean this. So what's the point of the inspiration? Right. It seems like he's continually challenging the idea of the inspirational authorship of the spirit writing through men and the inerrancy of, of God's word. I mean, it's just picking and choosing what he thinks is too fantastic and isn't. So essentially, you know, he's the, playing the, God with the scriptures. To, to try to speak for him, I think he would say, oh, no, no. He is trying to point out that that just wasn't what Moses meant, if indeed it was Moses. Some of the things he said, you you wonder if he really thinks that that a Moses is responsible for the Pentateuch as we have it. I, I, I got a feeling that he would probably say no, but however it got passed down, uh, somehow this, this book is inspired. I don't know if he would say the words are inspired, the, the concepts and so forth, um, which again is a pretty common understanding amongst a lot of Christians. Yeah, which is unfortunate because like many of the evidences you shared in the last uh, interview, uh, there has been some great new evidence compiling to show that Moses would have been able to not only author uh, the Torah, but that uh, God, you know, may have in fact 
been creating the first alphabet through Moses. This was brought up in the Moses controversy film by Tim Mahoney as they found this proto-Hebrew language that dates to the time that Moses would have been in Egypt if you put him in the Middle Kingdom, which is where all the archaeological evidence is found. And so uh, actually, I've mentioned that in, in other episodes, he's done a fantastic work on the historicity of Exodus, because that also has been challenged, even by many Orthodox Jews. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's another miracle. You got a miracle. Yeah. There is a lot of miracles after Genesis chapter 11. <laughs> so, yes, including the resurrection. Those are going to be those are going to be objected to as well. So he, he gets into here um, the whole idea of his assu- where his assumptions are coming from, which we already briefly talked about. But uh, let's just go ahead and listen to that. Well, since my question is, am I as a Christian in conflict with contemporary science as a result of my biblical commitments? I simply accept what the deliverances of contemporary science are. Now, that doesn't mean that I believe in them or defend them. I simply assume them. I say, given that there was a historical Adam or that that the Bible commits me to a historical Adam, then assuming what modern science has to say about human origins, is there some conflict between my biblical commitments and the deliverances of contemporary science? So what's he saying here? I don't want to read too much into it, but my take on what he is saying is he is um, accepting what evolutionary science proposes. And then he's saying, okay, so can we make that fit with what the Bible says? Of course, what ends up happening is you make what the Bible says fit with what contemporary evolutionary theory says. That, in my mind, is what he's saying, and that is, seems to me to be the, the foundational position that brings anyone into this process of then starting to say, oh, well, that's not really what uh, Genesis 1 through 11 means. It's uh, mytho-history. It's some kind of uh, literature that is completely foreign to anything else Jewish, like historical narrative even though it's written in historical narrative, it just, it's taking the proposals, the claims of science and fitting the Bible into it. That is my opinion of where he's coming from. I'd say that's a pretty fair observation. His next point, this is, uh, we're getting near the end of his, his clips here. He talks about humankind or mankind and the diversification we see. And I think this may play into the mitochondrial DNA uh, stuff that we were talking about in our last interview. So I'm really curious to see um, your response to him on this. That calculation made by Dennis Venema and others was based upon interpreting human beings to be restricted to homo sapiens. And you could not get an original pair of homo sapiens um, in the recent enough past to be able to explain the genetic diversification of our contemporary population. But you see, I think, as I said, that's a prejudicial identification. Neanderthals were just as human as homo sapiens. And so we need to push that original human pair back further in time to the most recent common ancestor of Neanderthals and homo sapiens. And when you do that, even Venema now agrees Hmm. that any time earlier than 500,000 years ago, population genetics cannot rule out the existence Hmm. of an original human pair who are the universal progenitors of mankind. So you have to push them back in order to get the diversification we see. Is this accurate? No. I mean, I don't know what uh, these two scientists that he just mentioned, I, I don't know who they are. I've not read their work. Um, so I, I can't speak at all to what he was saying about them. It sounded like he was disagreeing with them to some extent. But in any event, this idea of pushing modern man 
Um, and when I say modern man, we don't necessarily mean homo sapiens. What we're talking about, what I mean when I say modern man is just human beings. Pushing that back to half a million years, I don't know of any genetics that, that does that. Um, I the, the only thing I can figure is he's talking about some of the uh, anthropologists who are still working with nothing but bones. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be working with bones, but if they're working with nothing but bones, you know, then they're dating everything uh, by way of dating the rocks. And of course, with the rocks, you come up with the, with the millions and millions, hundreds of millions of years. But using genetics, um, we don't have near those age those ages for Neanderthal, for um, for Homo sapiens, for for any of the any of the species that we would consider to be modern man, and I don't like the even the way he talks about them as different species because they're races of one species that is uh, man, human humans. Which he goes out of his way to say that Neanderthals are just as much as human as we are. Yeah, I would agree. But then makes these distinctions. And he, in fact, went on a little bit of a tirade in um, the, the the video there about how he was tired of people dehumanizing Neanderthals. And I just find it interesting. It's like, well, if you actually hold to a literal view, it's not a problem at all. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, Neanderthal is a, a race that uh, no longer exists. Uh, there are other races of, of humans that we know no longer exist. Um, uh, and, and, you know, let's face it, someday, I hope this would never be taken out of context, but the Aborigines of Australia may be extinct someday. I mean, there's not very many of them left. Something could happen and wipe them out. So the, they're human beings. All of these different uh, races of humans, regardless of how the anthropologists name them, are, are human beings created in God's image. They look different. They have different characteristics. They lived at different times and uh, different places on earth, but they're all descendants, according to the Bible, of uh, Noah and his three sons and their three wives. Uh, now, we've got uh, two, two little clips here left. Uh, and the last one is a question in, that comes in from a listener of Sean McDowell's show. Um, and I figured I'd get your response to that uh, uh, compared to what uh, Craig says, but on this uh, second to last clip here, uh, this is where I'm kind of embarrassed, honestly, for for Dr. Craig. And yeah, I'm a layman. I'm I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctored theologian. But just as a you know a man of God trying to be faithful to the scriptures and my exegetical understanding, I, I'm embarrassed at his. Basically, he's what he admits here his theory still relies on a supernatural intervention. And to me, that just, it makes this whole idea of the need for this book and everything he's doing is sort of moat, but I'll let you hear what he says. Now, <laughs> assuming then for the sake of argument, the truth of evolutionary biology uh, okay. concerning human origins, we can imagine sometime prior to 750,000 years ago, a group of hominins, uh, maybe a, a few thousand. And through a biological and spiritual renovation, perhaps divinely induced, a, a miracle that caused a genetic mm -hmm. regulatory mutation in a pair of these hominins, they were lifted to fully human status and capable uh, of supporting a rational soul through their brain and nervous system. Uh, and they would then begin to have children. And I think given their full humanity, they would naturally tend to isolate themselves from their non-human contemporaries. In time, eventually, they and their descendants would supersede all of the non-human descendants um, and eventually give rise to different species of human beings like Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, and Denisovans. He's admitting that his own theory has to allow or even require 
a supernatural intervention. And so, well, gee, that sounds too fantastical to me. I, I don't even grasp his understanding of the distinction between humans created in the image of God. I, I, he may not think that they're created in the image of God. I, I don't know. You know, literally, that may just be another sort of euphemism how, as he put it, we were lifted um, to be able to support a soulish nature or something. I, I'm, I'm maybe misquoting him a little bit. I mean, he, it's as though he does not acknowledge the distinct nature of our spirit from our physical body. And again, I think that this is a crucial doctrine taught in the Bible all the way back when it speaks of God, how God created Adam. He creates a body out of dirt, and then he breathes a spirit into it. How clear can it be that God starts with a body? If he hadn't done anything more with it, it just would have been another animal. But he breathed into it a spirit. Throughout the Bible, it is consistent. The breath of God represents his spirit. So this two-part being distinguishes humans from all the other creatures. James then, in the New Testament, says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The body and the spirit are two distinct things. When the spirit leaves the body, it's dead. He never... He never talks about the spirit. The spirit is what is fallen. Jesus talks about it's not what you put into the body or, or what comes out of the body. It's the spirit that defiles the man. The, the, that's where sin comes from. It's, it's as though to not make it too fantastic that, well, we're all walking around with this supernatural thing inside of us. He's truly confused um, the nature of sin, where it came from, the nature of what it required for God to actually make a human being distinct from the other uh, creatures that he made. And it's almost like he's apologetic. Well, yeah, you know, guys, uh, I know you think this is crazy, but um, I, I do think God had to have done some kind of a miracle. Uh, the, the Bible sort of indicates that that they're important for something. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, and it just it's it's um, it's more than ironic. It seems to me that you know he would go on this long endeavor of oh, it's too fantastic. We have to be careful not to take it too literally. Yada yada yada. Oh, and my theory also requires a supernatural intervention. What? After all of this time, you know, of hand wringing over miracles and the supernatural and. And not being too literal. And here we are, the same kind of uh, thing that he's arguing against. Yeah, although, you know, he's never de he's never denied. I, I, if I recall, it seems to me that he does um, reiterate the essential uh, importance of uh, the resurrection. And I assume he would, you know, obviously that's miraculous. I don't know how you can get around that not being miraculous. But um, the creation, if, if, if he would use that word, I don't know if he would, but uh, somehow God intervening, let's say, let's put it that way, God intervening uh, in some miraculous way to make this historical person named Adam represented by a story um, in, with a literary name of Adam he he understands that that is essential to the the truth of the bible but so much of what the bible says is not what it on the surface seems to mean is is basically what he is saying and in that way we can sort of just go ahead and incorporate the uh deliverances of science as he puts it <laughs> Yes, the great savior of science. Well, this last, uh, this is the last clip, and this is a, a listener who wrote in to Sean McDowell's show, uh, and I think um, the listener actually had a good amount of discernment here, 
But Craig comes back to this whole idea of we just need to understand the different genres of literature and uh, that it's just, you know, clearly this person didn't understand it. So I'm curious to see how you would respond to the listener. And I think this question might illustrate um, a little different view than what you hold, but it'll give you a chance to clarify your view a little bit here. He says, if God used evolution to create man and the universe, why would he lie to us with the account of Adam and Eve? Yeah. Yeah. See, this is a failure to appreciate different literary genres and that not all of them are to be taken literally. Does uh, Troy think that God has lied to us in the book of Revelation when he says there's going to be a giant red dragon whose tail will sweep one third of the stars mm. out of the heavens? Has, has God lied in, in saying that to us? Uh, does Does God lie to us in saying that the moon is luminous? Uh, I don't think so. Does when the when the uh, psalmist says, "Let the trees of the wood clap their hands before the Lord," or God is described Mm. as breathing fire and smoke from his nostrils and riding on his heavenly chariot, is God lying to us? Oh, come on! You know, don't 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 we understand the different kinds of literature use figurative language and metaphor in order to express deep truths? Mm-hmm. And in the book, I lay out what I consider to be ten central theological truths that are taught to us by this primeval history, and these are far more important than thinking that there was. Uh, a tower of Babel at which all human languages originated. So how do you respond to that listener who wrote in the question, why would God lie? Well, I, I think you don't have to take it as far as when God uses metaphor or when, uh, you know, the different writers of the Bible are using um, symbolism that that's lying. But I, I don't really think that that person that was asking that question uh, is is thinking that way either. I think that what he is uh, worried about is that, okay, so we've got what is presented not just as a, uh, a metaphorical, little metaphorical statement. You're telling me that we've got uh, not even just 11 chapters. We've got 11 chapters plus story after story through now what is history mingled, mingling together with um, uh, no warning, just, well, that's not really what happened. This is also just a metaphor. This is all also just uh, mytho history. And again, then we just come to the point where, okay, so uh, was there really uh a nation that God secluded into Egypt and then he brought out of Egypt. I mean, the entire Old Testament is based on this group of people that that he established as a nation, gave them promises, and through whom brought the Messiah of the world. But what, that didn't really, that wasn't really what happened. You always just come back to the idea of, all right, who is going to determine what actually happened and what is just um, ideas being presented as um, literary uh, doctrine. Um, you know, I would agree with him. I, I don't know what his 10 principles are. There may be more, there may be less, but I would agree with him that the, those principles that the Old Testament is, is teaching, I mean, the, the foundation of the Bible comes out of the first few chapters of Genesis, for goodness sakes. Those things are more important than the specific details of this little person going to that place or whatever. But the problem is you begin to undermine the the reality of those principles when you just say, oh, but they're all just they're all just sort of made up um, stories to present these ideas. Uh, I, I would I would give as an example when God is talking to Job in chapters 38 and uh, on the things he are, the things that he is talking about to Job, which involves some fantastic 
um, claims by God of his work in creation. Those things are events. They are creatures. They are things that Job understood to be literal. He understood that behemoth was this giant creature that was still around. Um, I would consider that to be a dinosaur. Uh, he understood that Leviathan was a creature that apparently could breathe fire. And they would be meaningless if God was saying, I am great and I demonstrate my, my greatness by this made up creature I'm going to describe to you. <laughs> God was proving his greatness because he did do those things and Job understood it and knew it. So we just get in trouble, I think, if we begin to undermine the, the factualness of the places, the people, the events, miraculous or not, whether it's in the uh, Old Testament from chapter, Genesis 12, chapter 12 on or in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Sure. Yeah. Uh, now, when we had started this, you had mentioned you felt like a lot of this was sort of old news and sense this is sort of repackaged. Um, yeah, think things that these types of, of, of guys have been doing for uh, a long time. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> as we sort of wrap up the interview, uh, I thought maybe you could touch on that a little more and just give any kind of closing thoughts you had about um, some of the dangers and problems of, you know, these guys coming out and trying to basically deconstruct the Bible. Yeah, well, when um, a biblical critic would come out in a culture that essentially accepts the Bible um, as written, as God's truth, as inerrant. If they just come right out and say, oh, the Bible's full of errors, it's, it's uh, wrong, um, why don't you just you know, toss it in a fire heap? They are going to be met with so much resistance that they're going to have no influence, except for those that already are agreeing with him. So to infiltrate, and I use that word uh, specifically, to infiltrate the Christian community, they say, well, no, no, no. I'm not saying that the Bible is, is full of lies, that the Bible is wrong, but you just under have, you have to understand what the Bible actually meant and what it means is, and then there's an explanation. And based on that explanation, now these things that I am saying that you would have thought yesterday contradict the Bible, um, now you can look at the Bible in such a way that what I'm saying doesn't have to contradict it. And this has been done generation after generation. Um, I mean, back in Jesus' day, how in the world did the Sadducees figure out a way to come up with an explanation that denied the resurrection? They did, and there were a lot of people that followed them. So they had a hermeneutic that made it possible to take those passages that, uh, you know, Martha and Mary and Lazarus uh, and the disciples and the Pharisees even understood to, no, wait a minute, the Bible's teaching us that, the, that there's a literal resurrection. So this is nothing new. It's been going on and on and on. It's a way to infiltrate the community of God's people to insert error until you get to the point where the error becomes heretical, giving the definition that you know we touched on early in the program. If we're going to use as a definition for heretical, something that precludes a person from being saved. And the heretical position that these kinds of changing what the Bible means always end up um, coming to is the story of the resurrection is just a metaphor. It is just um, a way to teach a principle that uh, do good and uh, everything is going to work out good in the end. You know, um, mm -hmm. butterflies and, and, uh, and bunnies. Uh, but uh, now you don't really think. It, it's fantastic to think <laughs> that your body would be reanimated and your person in your spirit would be put back together with a, an incorruptible body and that you're going to live forever? Come on, grow up, be sophisticated, um, look around you. Is that happening? Of course not. 
That is where it ends up. And yet, what does Paul tell us? If the resurrection of the dead is not true, we of all people are most to be pitied. So I don't think that what uh, Dr. Craig is doing is any different than Swami Das, John Walton. Uh, the, the, you can just go back through history. Um, theologian after theologian, scientist after scientist in trying to combine the two and say that theology must bow to science. This is what continues to happen. And uh, uh, Dr. Craig's explanation may have some nuance to it, but it's nothing new. Do you view him as an infiltrator? I would say that, yes. I mean, I would say that what he is doing is he is presenting uh, explanations uh, to believers that uh, make them feel like, oh, good. I don't have to be an oddball and go against the current uh, in our culture of, of miracles, of, uh, of, of a, an interpretation of, the, of Genesis that would indicate that the universe is not old, that it didn't uh, take billions of years to evolve by chance, orchestrated by God somehow in the background, of course, um, you know, that theistic evolutionary idea, or even go, go so far as to um, claim a deism. So, yes, I think that those ideas that he's presenting uh, will be uh, damaging, not that they're new. So, I mean, these ideas are replete. He's just got a, a new, uh, a, little, a little new twist to it, maybe snagging a few more uh, people. Uh, yeah, I mean, Hugh Ross uh, it was one of the original uh, well-known creationists that really got his foot into the, the majority of the evangelical Christian community. And so without understanding it, people just assume, oh, okay, it, it must be right, you know, what all those scientists say. And I know that there's this really fine Christian that uh, has given us an explanation of how they can be. I don't understand it, but I'll accept what he says, or I'll accept what Craig says, or I'll accept what Swami Das says. You know, we all are inconsistent in, in different areas of our of our faith and our understanding of the Bible, but I would say that some inconsistencies uh, can lead to much more damaging results, even faith uh, destroying results than than other inconsistencies. <laughs> yeah, I'm reminded of a, a proverb, Proverb thirteen twenty, and I don't know. If we could say it necessarily relates to Craig, but it did come to mind. It says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And I ha have to wonder, um, you know, with all due respect to Dr. Craig, if a lot of these people that he's getting his information from, which you've continually asked through the interview tonight, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who are these people and uh, how come he's not doing more research in these other areas? And, um, you know, maybe that's because he's made him made a companion with a lot of people who have, well, you know, <laughs> made fools you know, of themselves. You know, through. you know, Casey, that's an interesting point. And, and, and I, you know, I, I don't have documentation of this, just observation, but not only from myself, but others, that the influence that he is having, and that uh, the the Hugh Rosses of of evangelicalism, quote unquote, is having the influence is with believers, not with the uh, atheistic uh, evolutionists. They are completely unimpressed with the idea that oh look, well we can accept a lot of what you're saying, but we do need you know we we've got to have God doing a miracle here or there, and they they immediately just scoff at that. They are not coming any closer to um, biblical faith, but the believers do because they figure, oh, well, now so we can we can sort of scoot closer towards these evolutionists. So um, whatever motivation, and, and I think a lot of times it begins with a good motivation, we're trying to find some common ground so that we can get some of these um, atheistic evolutionists to um, accept the Bible uh, just interpret it differently. Um, the, I, I'm sure there are some that have come there, but by far and away, the impact is on the believers. 
and how many young people they start um, compromising a scripture with science and they don't stop at, uh, oh, well, it's just Genesis 1 through 11 is mytho-history. It just keeps going and going until they go, you know, this book, what part of it can you believe? If it starts out with, with not meaning what it says, why in the world should I believe the gospel of John? So I, I think it does just so much, so far much more damage to um, the Christian community than it helps in establishing common ground with the atheistic evolutionary community. Well, that's really all the questions I had. Did you have anything, <coughs> excuse me, did you have anything else that you wanted to add before we closed? No, no, I, I, uh, I've enjoyed the uh, thought-provoking uh, um, interview there between McDowell and Craig, and, and uh, I think it was good for us to hear his own words, uh, not us be just quoting him. And uh, I, I'm sure that I probably said some things and misrepresented him, misrepresented him here and there. Uh, I hope I've been, I've been careful to try and, and uh, be, be careful to interpret what he is saying carefully and uh, be gracious, but also be careful to point out error and, and warn, warn people about going down that path that he is, is presenting to uh, the Christian community at large. No, I, I'm with you. And that's why I've done this whole Genesis problem series, because as soon as you start tinkering with that, those particularly, particularly those, you know, the, the proto history or the, the early chapters, as they say, uh, you start running to all kinds of problems and it just, <laughs> it just all starts falling apart really fast. Yeah. Our, 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 the, the way we interpret the Bible is very, very important. And uh, so hermeneutics is a very, very important subject that uh, uh, I don't think enough Christians uh, study. Um, you know, we want to jump right into the Bible and that's great. But uh, if we're going to spend much time uh, studying the Bible, I think having an understanding of hermeneutics is crucial. And that's all that Craig was talking about essentially was hermeneutics. How do you interpret Genesis 1 through 11? And he was proposing a model to do that, that I submit is wrong. It's, it's got a few nuances, but it's been a model proposed by many, many unbelievers as well as believers. Uh, we need to be careful how we interpret the Bible. Obviously, there are different forms of literature, but uh, the type of literature that they're coming up with, <laughs> this mytho-history, uh, we have uh, nothing in the Bible to indicate that anywhere else. I think we need to be careful not to go down that route. Yes, we do, to, to be on guard. And uh, that's why I'm doing this show. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming on to the show. It's been great to have you back, and, and thanks for, uh, for giving up your time tonight. Well, thanks for having me again, Jason. All right. God bless you. I want to thank Dr. Scripture for returning to the program today, helping us break down what was being said by Dr. Craig and why it is both inconsistent and dangerous thinking. After reviewing the second portion of the Craig interview, I am reminded of a statement from the film The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. In the opening monologue of that film, the elf Galadriel is summarizing the ancient history of Middle-earth, explaining all that has happened and how the Ring of Power ended up in the hands of an innocent hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. As we see the story unfold, she states, History became legend, and legend became myth. I think this is a perfect summary for our own ancient history. It has been mythologized away by these experts, such as Craig, seeing it as just too fantastic to have been literal. In my view, this is the fatal flaw of Craig's entire argument. If the accounts in the early chapters of Genesis, such as the creation, the flood, and the dispersion at the Tower of Babel, or the confrontation Moses had with the magicians in Pharaoh's court, or this traveling well he mentions, are too fantastic to be literally true, what miracles can we then trust to be historical? It calls all of the miraculous acts of God throughout Scripture into question. It's not just a slippery slope. It's past the slope hanging in midair over the chasm. For a man running a ministry called Reasonable Faith, what is reasonable about anything that has been said today?
Craig is clearly bringing in a strong element of skepticism into his biblical hermeneutic, that is, his interpretation and explanation of the scriptures. He has the discernment to see that throwing out an historical atom creates massive theological problems, yet is consistently throwing things out that he deems too fantastic. What is to stop us from looking at the works of Christ, his miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension as too fantastic? Why are we limited to seeing only these events as historical and true? And indeed, as I've mentioned in prior episodes, if Christ himself, along with Peter and Paul, relate the return of Christ to the events of the flood, which according to Craig would just be a mytho-history, then should we see his second coming in the same way? I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If Craig's own model that was proposed in his book allows or even requires the supernatural intervention of God, then why is it any more credible than what we read in Genesis? It is this great irony and danger of what Craig is doing here, for he is trying to largely dismiss the very story in which the serpent, that is Satan, tempts Eve by calling into question what God has already told her. Genesis 3, 1-7 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here we see that the very fall of man was brought about by calling what God had said into question. And as it was discussed in today's show, along with prior episodes, there are all kinds of problems that arise by calling what God has said into question, particularly as it relates to these first 11 chapters of Genesis. It is the great problem that arises with scholars and scientists and theologians who continually try to dismiss these chapters as some form of mytho-history, something other than what the scriptures seem to be simply stating that they are. Craig states that getting caught up on thinking Genesis, or these first 11 chapters in particular, are a literal text is a failure to appreciate different types of literary genres. Now, while Craig does defend the resurrection as literal history, he seems apt to throw out or mythologize many of the other miracles we read about in the scriptures. To me, this is simply excuse-making on Craig's part, along with other scholars and experts who would attempt to dismiss the first 11 chapters of Genesis as literal. They fall back on, it's clearly a different type of genre, so it's clearly not literal, while at the same time saying that the resurrection of Christ is certainly literal. It's as if the expert class here thinks so long as they defend the works of Christ as accurate and historical, the rest is fair game to be seen as too fantastic. It is troubling and deeply inconsistent thinking. If it was so clear that those early chapters of Genesis were but a mytho-history, then why, for centuries, has the church taken it to be literal? It may be clear to Craig, but I dare say that the voices of Christian history would very much disagree with him. I think his hermeneutical view also points to a subtle conviction he holds, along with many other expert scholars, that they now know better than the misguided saints of old. They have progressed with the deliverances of modern science, as Craig stated. It is an arrogance we see in much of the expert class, both among biblical circles and abroad throughout society and our institutions. It is a spirit that reminds me of the story Craig dismisses as literal, which is the Tower of Babel. In the 11th chapter of Genesis, we see man and his arrogance think that he can accomplish anything, as they attempt to create their own heaven on earth at this tower, their own utopian city. It is the same thing we see happening today, as the elites within our society and governments are attempting to reset things, working towards some fanciful Marxist utopia. What a shock it will be for them when the king returns, ushering in not a counterfeit heaven on earth, but a literal one. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, 
you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I hope you enjoyed the second part of this two-part interview with Dr. Scripture of Scripture on Creation Ministries. Please look in the show description for links to several videos related to today's program. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review along with any favorable comments you have. Consider helping the show by clicking on the ACAST supporter link or by becoming an official patron. Check out our Facebook page to leave comments or questions or on Twitter at Casey Knowlton. You can also email me at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the season finale coming at the beginning of December. Thanks so much for listening in today. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to This Late Hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.